You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Two ransomware incidents now seem worse than originally believed. Hacking hospitals raises concerns for patient safety. It appears Fancy Bear was the group that hacked the U.S. federal agency CISA warned about recently. Chris Novak from Verizon considers whether investigations should be performed under attorney-client privilege and if that privilege will hold. Alex Mosher from Mobile Iron explains how yours truly got fished with cookies... And interruptions to trading on Japan's exchanges seem to be due to technical problems and not to cyber attack. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, October 1st, 2020. ransomware incidents are looking worse than initially anticipated. CMA-CGM had disclosed Monday that a ransomware infestation had hit its IT systems, with operations in the Asia-Pacific region most heavily affected. The container shipping giant's early announcements about the incident tended to describe it as an inconvenience that the company was working through without undue disruption of operations. It now appears, however, that data was compromised. The company updated its disclosure yesterday, Splash 24-7 reports, telling customers, quote, We suspect a data breach and are doing everything possible to assess its potential volume and nature, end quote. Customers are raising eyebrows over what some are criticizing as a laggard acknowledgement that the issue was a ransomware attack and not just an internal glitch. Still, on the plus side, the cargo seems to have kept moving. And the ransomware attack against BlackBaud and its widely used donor relations management platform has made its effects felt through a widening circle of customers. Those effects are now known to be more serious than had been hoped. According to Computing, BlackBaud has determined that the attackers accessed financially sensitive information. A Form 8K the company filed with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission says in part, quote, After July 16th, further forensic investigation found that for some of the notified customers, the cybercriminal may have accessed some unencrypted fields intended for bank account information, social security numbers, usernames, and or passwords. In most cases, fields intended for sensitive information were encrypted and not accessible. These new findings do not apply to all customers who are involved in the security incident. Customers who we believe are using these fields for such information are being contacted the week of September 27, 2020, and are being provided with additional support, end quote. 
So again, universities, hospitals, not-for-profits look to your financial information, or rather to your donor's financial information. There's another undropped shoe in the Blackbaud case that's worth taking note of. The company paid the ransom in exchange for the criminal's promise to destroy any data they'd taken. We leave it as an exercise for the listener to assess how much stock should be placed in that promise. As Universal Health Systems works to remediate the effects of the Ryuk ransomware attack it sustained this week, the Wall Street Journal argues persuasively that ransomware as such has grown in aggressiveness and sophistication and that it increasingly represents a threat to patient safety. About 250 of Universal Health Systems facilities in the U.S. were affected to some extent by the attack. There have been no known repetitions of the sad death of a patient who died when the ambulance carrying her had to be diverted from Dusseldorf's Uniklinik to a more distant facility. The Dusseldorf Hospital was undergoing a Doppelpamer ransomware attack that hit on September 10th and temporarily disrupted its ability to accept emergency patients. Do the criminals care? Well, maybe. Doppelpamer interrupted its attack when German police emailed them that they were killing people. But on the other hand, they didn't really stick around to help the hospital fix the problem. Digital Shadows has taken a look at what goes into the formation of a criminal community, and while the participants all seem recognizably human, with concerns, insecurities, ambitions, the whole nine emotional yards, the criminal fora aren't places for moral rigorists. So sorry... No Robin Hoods. The Cyber Hoods are thoroughly 21st century types. The Hoods, they want what they want, and they'll go after the targets whom they think are likely to be willing and able to pay. Insofar as they mean well, when such thoughts cross their minds, they don't seem to do much more than rise to the low threshold of slacktivism. Put on a t-shirt that says ally, maybe, or apply a bumper sticker that says you break for small animals, whether you do or not. Self-congratulation tarted up as categorical imperative, but when it comes to actually hurting someone, well, the criminals want to be paid. Tough luck. So, hospitals, look to your defenses. More is emerging on the cyber attack the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency last week said a foreign actor mounted against an unnamed U.S. federal agency, which agency was hit in the cyber espionage incident remains publicly unknown, but Wired reports the perpetrator looks like Fancy Bear, Russia's GRU. CISA didn't name Fancy Bear, also known as APT-28, but they do outline a step-by-step -step set of techniques that map fairly closely to an approach that researchers at industry cybersecurity firm Dragos earlier this year ascribed to the GRU. The techniques are also consistent with those Microsoft attributed to Fancy Bear in September. In any case, as a matter of sheer a priori probability, it should surprise no one that Fancy Bear has emerged from the aquarium to snuffle at a U.S. federal agency. The BBC says a technical glitch has caused Japan's stock exchanges to suspend trading, the Japan Exchange Group told the BBC that trading shut down after a backup system failed to kick in after a hardware malfunction. The exchanges hope to be back up tomorrow. They say that no cyber attack was implicated in this week's system failure. May the exchanges recover on time.
Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Not long ago, a package showed up here at CyberWire Intergalactic Headquarters, addressed to me from security company Mobile Iron. Inside was a box of delicious cookies. But not just any cookies. These cookies had QR codes printed on them. Alex Mosher is Global VP of Solutions at Mobile Iron. So you had, obviously, the cookies. And then on each of the cookies, we went ahead and put a QR code. Uh, and the reason that we did that is, as you know, we've certainly seen uh, as a result of the pandemic going on, a lot of contactless interaction with various systems, go back to a restaurant, oftentimes the menu is on a QR code, uh, or you get a receipt or a bill and you're using a QR code, or you're checking out at a service or maybe even an, an online system, maybe even folks that used to bill you in person, uh, now maybe they're sending you an email and that has an embedded QR code in it. Uh, so QR codes have become really relevant in our lives and certainly, I think, amplified as part of the whole pandemic that uh, we've been uh, going through and managing through. Uh, so what we did was we took a box of great cookies, something uh, everybody would, as you mentioned, love to have, and we put a <laughs> QR code on it, incentivizing you to hopefully your curiosity get the best of you and, yes. uh, and get you to go ahead and scan that QR code. Now, the gotcha point with our QR code was it directed you to a site that uh, very easily could have been a phishing site or a malicious site of sorts just to kind of get you thinking about, whoa, I don't even think about when I go to those examples I gave before, the restaurant, 
the bill, you know, wherever it might be, and I just maybe blindly scan things like QR codes with my mobile device because it's so easy to do and, and it makes life certainly much simpler, especially in the current times. Yeah, you know, one thing that struck me in my own uh, experience with the cookies that you all sent out was that, you know, I think it's the default in iOS that when you have your camera app open and it sees a QR code, it automatically sort of triggers it and it, it, yes. it says, hey, do you want me to open this? I, you can disable that, but, uh, you know, that that's a, that, there's an issue, I could take issue with that itself. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and if you think about it, there are legitimate good sources, like it certainly makes life a whole lot more convenient, right? Could mm, you imagine mm-hmm. today with the challenges and think about, you know, the communication platforms we have, the ability to quickly just communicate with all kinds of people on platforms like SMS and, and iMessage and WhatsApp and, and the sort. So because these systems are, are so great and they benefit us so greatly, it's what really puts them at such easy target from a hacker's perspective, because they know that, that you're doing things in, in quick real time. You're not really paying super close attention to what's happening. You you're there at that location, you get the cookie, you scan it, you're, you're thinking something good is, is, uh, is the result, and uh, only to find out that uh, you know, something bad has happened at the end of the day. And again, you don't have to go even far back in history. I'll reference again that Twitter attack. A lot of this was sort of done that same way, using systems that were put in place to make life easier and more convenient. We focused more on the convenient side than we did the security side. You really have to find a balance between the two. That's Alex Mosher from Mobile Iron. These are delicious cookies. And joining me once again is Chris Novak. He's the director of the Verizon Threat Research Advisory Center. Uh, Chris, it's always great to have you back. I wanted to touch today about uh, investigations um, and where we are when it comes to attorney-client privilege these days. There's There's been some recent developments that have made this a little more interesting, yes? That is absolutely true and maybe even an understatement, uh, yes. <laughs> it's definitely an exciting topic of the day. Well, go on. Lay it, um, explain for us where do we stand right now? Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, one of the challenges we often see is that organizations will typically approach incident response or a breach investigation typically from a, a technical perspective. You know, the, the IT team or the IT security team may know exactly how they plan to attack the problem and what tools they're going to use and their technical playbooks. But oftentimes we'll forget the other stakeholders, right? And there's, you know, HR, there's PR, crisis communications, but then there's usually a biggie in there, legal. Um, and, and a lot of times organizations will either forget or engage legal, you know, maybe just a little bit too late or their inside counsel may not necessarily have a lot of experience in the areas of data privacy, data security, and the various regulations that may sometimes go along with that, as well as, you know, how would this work if we wanted to do an investigation under attorney-client privilege such mm-hmm. that, you know, that, that, that legal entity, whether it be inside counsel or outside counsel, can, can properly guide them through their investigation and what obligations they may have and, you know, also help them as it relates to potential litigation down the road. Is it ever a situation where when folks are in the midst of this and they're thinking about to what degree they should engage with their their in-house legal department, 
um, you know, it's, it's easier to apologize and get permission kind of thing, where <laughs> if we engage these attorneys, they're going to throw a, a pair of virtual handcuffs on us and limit our ability to be nimble. Yeah, so, I mean, the thing that I would always recommend, and this is the reason why we do a lot of tabletops and wargaming and things like that before an incident occurs, is to bring those stakeholders into the fold so that you're not just relying on technical playbooks, but you've got stakeholder playbooks for everybody. So you know the questions legal is going to ask. You're going to know the kinds of answers you're probably going to give. And if there's any, quote, handcuffs they're going to put, you're going to know what that's going to look like and why. And if Mm. you can work together those problems usually are less of an issue, right? And and at that case, at least you're you're playing on the same team and legal knows what their obligations and responsibilities are, and so does the the technical folks. Where do opinions stand these days in terms of that attorney-client privilege actually holding? So I, I'd say there's, you know, some recent court activity that has happened that has, you know, kind of uh, maybe caused everybody to kind of look at things uh, from a side-eye perspective to figure out, whoa, <laughs> has has the way we've been doing this working? Um, and, and what I would say is that I, I think, you know, and, and I'm not a lawyer, maybe just play one on TV, but, um, but you know, we, we sometimes joke at Verizon that we have more lawyers sometimes than some law firms do. Um, but <laughs> but we look at a lot of the data privacy and a lot of the, the, the data sovereignty laws to try to understand how things work and then also understand, hey, you know, when there's a breach, there's almost always going to be some element of potential litigation and how you prepare for that. And I think the, the attorney-client work product doctrine and attorney-client privilege, I think very much still holds true today. But I think the challenges that we've seen where it's, kind of deteriorated in the past has been in circumstances where maybe it wasn't necessarily applied correctly. And so this goes back to that kind of tabletop wargaming kind of aspect where you bring all those stakeholders into the fold for practice sessions so we can understand how to do it. Because, for example, if you try to apply, you know, attorney-client work product doctrine or privilege after the fact, you're probably going to be challenged on it. It's going to be questionable as to whether or not legal was really guiding something if legal wasn't really involved from the beginning. You know, in some of the conversations you and I have had, you've really emphasized the value of having these tabletop exercises. Can you give us some insights there? I mean, how is that time well spent for the organization? Yeah, I'd say that it's probably one of the most valuable things. And thankfully, we've seen a dramatic uptick in organizations actually doing it. If we roll back the clock a handful of years, it was something that it was almost like pulling teeth to try to encourage organizations to practice for a breach. And that's, you know, you kind of think of the older days where, you know, people kind of thought, well, it's probably not going to happen to me. It's almost always Mm going to happen to someone else. And then they've seen, I think, enough breaches happen where they go, you know what, we should we should probably know how to deal with this if it happens or when it happens to us. And so absolutely time well spent. Typically, we encourage you to bring all the stakeholders in. So bring representation from legal, HR, PR, crisis communications, the board. Um, If there's regulators, we've even seen some organizations who've said, hey, we really want to impress our regulators. And we feel like having a good relationship with them as opposed to maybe what some would see as an adversarial relationship would be beneficial. So we've even seen some of them bring in their regulators to those exercises just so that everyone Everyone can go through the motions together. And one of the the best things about it is when an incident does happen, then it's like you're running through a script that you've all practiced. You know what roles 
everybody plays and everybody can do them much better and more comfortably. And and then generally the outcome is more positive because you're not trying to figure out what to do in the middle of a crisis, which I think is the time most people would agree is that's the bad time to figure it out, right? That's that's why we do fire drills, right? To make sure yeah. that when the actual fire happens, we all know the routines and we've got fire marshals to help make sure we all go out the right places and nobody goes down the elevator, all those kinds of things. That's the analogy that I would draw to the, the tabletop exercise for a cyber event is, you know, do your fire drills and be prepared. You're, you're much more likely to have a successful or a, a more mitigated outcome. All right. Well, Chris Novak, thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thank you. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time, keep you informed, it'll make you kiss a little longer, hold hands a little longer, hold tight a little longer. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.